so this patient, good good family doctor, I've been taking care of his dad for a while, and then his mom, and then his mom pulled me aside and said, you know, I have a son who's really struggling. He's living on the streets. He has hepatitis C. He uses IV heroin. I think he needs a primary care doctor. So that I'd be happy to see him here. So we, she found him and brought him in for primary care. And I saw him for primary care over the course of a couple of years. Um, and I would offer treatment and provide him with community resources and try to do what I could for him. But he wasn't ready for that and continued to use and continued um, to kind of be at risk. And then it must have been around October of 2018, so just before I started doing this work, he came in with a skin infection, which is a common complication of injection drug use. I was like, come on, let's, what can I do to get you into treat, treatment? And, and he, he actually said to me, like, if you, if you do it, if you do it here, I'll come. So let me know when you're ready. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. My guest today is Judy Chertok. Dr. Chertok is an assistant professor of family medicine and community health at Penn. She's also the assistant program director for residency and family medicine and the co-course director for the Introduction to Clinical Medicine Patient Communications course. Welcome. Thank you. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. I was wondering if you could actually recreate some of the discussions you had when he was in that state mm -hmm. and just some of the interactions like you know what he said what you you know your conversations how he looked mm -hmm. and then how it changed over time mm -hmm. so i think the most important thing in life probably and in medicine is kindness and so i really think about that for someone like my patient who was living on the street who looked unkempt who didn't probably get a lot of kindness in his life. I like to really think of that as the emphasis of my interaction with him, especially when he was struggling, right? So when he comes to my office, from the front desk to my assistant to his time with me, we want to treat him with kindness and respect. And to me, if we do that well, we maintain the relationship and we provide just so much for the person in front of us. And so I really think about that with everyone, but particularly for people that are marginalized in other ways in our society, kind of treating them with kindness and respect from the get-go is hugely important. And so I think having developed a relationship with him over the period of a couple of years when he was at his most vulnerable, struggling in the most, trying to be non-judgmental, trying to say, well, what are, if you're, if you don't want to go to the hospital today, what can I do to keep you as safe as possible? What would you be willing to do? What are the things that we can consider in this moment? But really being flexible and non-judgmental and open-minded. What did the conversation sound like? Like, what would he say to you when he came in? And what did he look like? And um, I mean, I, th I think generally when he would, um, he, anxious, <laughs> um, stressed, unkempt, um, and, and worried, um, often when, 
you know, I'm thinking of the last interaction before we started treatment, but but he was sick. He looked ill. Um, he had a red swollen hand and clearly had an infection that I thought needed to be um, dealt with in a hospital um, based on the looks of it. And in our discussion, I said, look, I'm really worried about you. I'm really worried about this infection. I'm really worried about what is going on right now. Can we get you to the emergency room? You'd be on my team with my people. Can we get you over to the hospital so we can get you the treatment you need? And he said, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to the hospital today. I said, okay. Could I try to open it up here in the office? Could I try to do a small procedure here? It is not ideal, but I think maybe if we did something, maybe that would help you. He said, no, not going to do that. I said, okay. How about some antibiotics? <laughs> what if I ordered you antibiotics? Do you think you might be able to take antibiotics at least for a couple of days? He said, that I think I can do. I said, okay, I'm going to order you some antibiotics. I have a pharmacy in my lobby. Please pick it up before you go anywhere else. Please call your mom if things get worse. Please come to any hospital if things get worse. Like, the, you know, what, what, let me know how I can help, right? And I think that's a lot of the discussion. And, and, I think for the patient, and I, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I think there are, he, he likely had other experiences where someone said, you need to go to the hospital, and that might have been the end of the discussion. Um, sorry. Um, and, and I think kind of having the flexibility and thinking about other options or what he might be more interested in, I, I think was helpful in that moment. And ultimately his infection did get better, I know, because I saw him after the fact. Um, but I, I think those kinds of conversations, um, negotiations, thinking about what people are really willing to do in the moment, um, I, 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 that, that's, there's, I think negotiation is the right word. That's how a lot of those interactions have gone. Um, but with a, with a kindness that hopefully welcomes like ongoing discussion. What did he say to you when he was ready to start being treated? So he, like many people, said, I'm just tired of this. I can't go on like this. Um, I think for many people with addiction, it starts out feeling good. But as their body becomes increasingly addicted, particularly to opiates, it doesn't feel good anymore. People are just continuing to use drugs in order to not feel sick from stopping using drugs. And so well, he was not in a place where he got any joy out of it anymore or any euphoria. He was just tired and sick and ill um, and had been through different kinds of treatment programs before that didn't feel right to him. And so he, he said, I'm not going to go to methanol maintenance. I can't do something every day. I know myself. I'll never keep up with it. Suboxone sounds pretty good. I've tried it before on the street. Like, I mean, he did. He said to me, let me know when you're willing to prescribe it. Um, and so, um, like I said, I, I, I called him when we had the infrastructure in place, and then he came. And Suboxone comes in a few different formulations. Mm -hmm. So what did you put him on? Um, so Suboxone is interesting because you can't swallow it like a regular pill, so it has to be absorbed under the tongue or sublingually. And so it comes in a tablet form and a strip form. Many of my patients prefer the strip form because it dissolves more quickly, and so it's less kind of chalky in your mouth. So um, I believe from the beginning, there's some insurance rigmarole here, and I'm really lucky to have a pharmacy team that helps me figure this out. But um, 
for for him, I I believe he's still on the strip form, which is what most of my patients are on if their insurance will allow it. So tell me what it was like when he started. So it was really exciting. Um, He came in with his mom, who's a support person, who, like I said, is also my patient. Um, And we had the case manager in the room and I was in the room and we were all like, we're going to do this. Like there was just a sense of like excitement that we were all coming together to kind of work together. We actually, in the beginning, when we'd all come together, we called it team, his name. (laughs) We were like, we're all here. We're all rooting for you. Um, So there was, I mean, it was a really wonderful moment. We kind of went through the paperwork and talked about the structure of the program and things like that that um, and prescribed the medication and checked in with him the next day and he came back the next week. What did he say? He, I think like many people have um, the first week or two transitioning from heroin to that degree to suboxone can be challenging. Um, And I think he had some of the physical discomforts of that transition like many patients do. What kind of things? Um, so you don't have a full withdrawal syndrome, but people can still feel like minimal, like mild withdrawal symptoms of first week. And sometimes people feel nauseous or headaches or just not quite right. Um, but very quickly he felt good or nor most people just try to feel normal. Um, but he did, he felt normal. He felt good. He had better energy and he was kind of able to do what he needed to do. And what was his progress from there? Because you said over two years, I mean, he got into a relationship, he got off the street, he actually got a job. Mm-hmm. So tell me a bit about those steps. How did he how did he progress? And what you know, what were the conversations? What would he say to you? Yeah. What were so, his words? I mean, so many different conversations over time, um, just talking about um his goals and where he was at and what his stressors and triggers were, um, just constant checking in, his mood, his you know, his life, right? Um, that, and the kind of way the program works is there are those frequent check-ins so that we can kind of ensure that people are um, getting the support that they need during the progress, during the initial part of the treatment. We spent a lot of time talking about getting him into therapy, which for him actually wasn't successful and was never something that worked for him. Um, but time thinking about like what other parts of the team could work. Um, he interestingly had such a really involved family that he was able to essentially do like a directly observed treatment, like you, like a daily treatment where his family member would dispense the medication to him each day. And I think that he ended up with this additional structure that helped him a lot, especially in the beginning. Um, and we still see each other and we talk about what is going on in his life and what are the other supports that he still needs as he continues to struggle with other things. What does he do when something reminds him of heroin? So I think it is still a struggle for him that he talks about. And, and he'll say things like, you know, people who say they never think about it, they're just lying to you. You know, he he really um, is, is open about that. Um you know, he has used other drugs over this time period, and we know that people with um, opiate use disorder are treated well with buprenorphine, but it doesn't necessarily treat other addictions. And so a lot of our time has been spent talking about triggers, and sometimes if he's not going to use heroin, maybe he uses something else. And so kind of talking through the counseling around that. Um, and so there are times when he does use illicit substances to manage those things. And there are times when he's able to use some of the strategies we've talked about, reaching out for our family members, getting out of the situation, taking a walk, taking a deep breath, like all kinds of things that, um, um, you know, we and and his the case manager and his family have kind of talked with him through. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, 
Don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. Could you tell us a little bit about your life growing up and then move towards how you chose to become a doctor? Sure. Um, So I grew up in New York City and Queens, as well as Long Island, a suburb of New York City. Um, Did not have any doctors in the family. That wasn't something that I grew up with in a close context. Um, But I think like many people had an ill family member in in high school, my grandfather who got sick. I think that first was my Um, one of my major exposures to medicine in a more substantial way. And I think that got my interest going that by the time I applied to college, I was already thinking about going into a career in medicine. Um, And when I went to college, I was really interested in public health and health policy and was thinking that that was something that I might be interested in in addition to medicine and ended up having a major in American studies, but with a focus in health policy. And through my work in health policy, I became very interested in the idea of primary care and that this is sort of the way to affect change in the system and the front line um, in treating sort of the health of the nation from a public health perspective. And so when I decided to go into medicine, I really knew that I wanted to do primary care and that was sort of the thing that I was looking for and what I was most interested in, even from the start of medical school. So even before you were interviewing for medical school, that that was what you had in mind? Yeah. You know, I spent a summer doing two internships, one at a public health organization doing some political advocacy and one in an emergency room at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And I just loved the direct contact with patients. And as much as I aspire to be a political advocate, the sort of slow nature of that and the lack of immediate feedback from change um, made me realize that I needed something a little bit different for my career. And what was it that got you, you know, during your college years, what was it that got you interested in health policy? You know, it's an interesting question and it's, I'm not sure I can think back to what was the um, original reason for it, but I think there was a sense that this is something that's so important to everyone and so unfairly distributed and essentially poorly done in our country. And so the idea that we had such advances in medicine and yet, you know, at that point, such a crisis of uninsured patients and so many disparities in health, I think made me, um, I don't know, interested. It intersected with a lot of other interests that I had in terms of injustice and unequal treatment in our society. And so it seemed like that would be potentially my way of getting more involved. So uh, talk about in medical school, um, how it was um, that you sort of solidified your idea of what you wanted to do as you got towards third year and fourth year. I mean, you've already said, certainly you had an idea that community medicine would put you there. But, uh, but talk a little bit more about you were out there doing rounds, different services. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, I might start with the beginning of medical school. Um, and I went to a medical school that is very was very subspecialized, did not have a ton of opportunities in primary care, and that wasn't the emphasis for sure in the curriculum. Um, and so I came in very interested in primary care, um, looking for opportunities, and there were not so many things available, but we did have a very early on um, shadowing opportunity where we were kind of placed in the community or with other faculty physicians. And I ended up 
but kind of by happenstance, getting placed with family medicine and working with someone who ultimately became my mentor just from the very first couple months of medical school and spending one evening a week with, um, with him, Dr. Ho, and being like, oh, this is it. <laughs> like, this is the thing. Um, watching him take care of generations of family, having these relationships, kind of how smart he was in terms of thinking through both, you know, kind of the, the array of medical issues and social issues and other kinds of things that he saw. And so I think I was pretty in love from that beginning of medical school. Um, and ultimately, in my first and second year of medical school, having that interest in family medicine became involved in the interest group, which was just me for a while. And so having a lot of mentorship, actually being one of the few people interested in it and getting to know the faculty and the residents in that department kind of continued to solidify my interest. Um, and then during my rotations, I think like many people who end up going into family medicine or other kind of um, diverse specialties, maybe like emergency medicine, I, I kind of liked everything. And so I went through my rotations and I was like, oh, this is great. I love pediatrics. Oh, this is great. I love OBGYN. Um, and, and I really had very few things I didn't like, even to my surprise surgery, which I thought I wouldn't like. I was, oh, this is really fun. I enjoy the operating room. And so I think having that experience during my rotations of liking everything and then having the foundation of already thinking I want to do primary care, having exposure to family medicine, it kind of clicked for me prettier, you know, throughout that year and, and felt right. Now, I'm in emergency medicine, and in a sense, we're both generalists. Mm -hmm. We get to do a broad array of things, but we also don't get the depth in any one field, you know, in any one area. Um, so you, you always sacrifice something when you choose a specialty. Yeah, I, I was not tempted by the um, expert subspecialist, subspecialist in something, and I think part of that is that my interest in medicine did come down to relationships and helping people service um, and that side of it as opposed to the basic science aspect of medicine. And so I, I don't think I ever pictured myself being, I don't know, the world expert in something really important, <laughs> but um, that, that didn't ever really draw to me. And I think I'm someone who is quite comfortable with the uncertainties that you see in a general practice. Um, and I think from a personality perspective, I'm okay with that, but I do think it is um, something to think about. <laughs> You were both a medical student and a resident at Columbia, mm -hmm. and I happen to have been there for six years myself. And you, you mentioned that they were not very focused on family medicine. Talk a little bit about the environment there. I really had a wonderful training there, both in medical school and residency. And being at an institution where um, – that it that is such a research-oriented place, a subspecialty-oriented place, I think people sometimes didn't even realize that there was a family medicine program or that there was this really strong group of primary care doctors, but that did exist there. And I was so lucky to kind of find them and get this really excellent training, mentorship with a group of people who were incredibly committed to the work that they did. And in some ways, I wonder if being in a place that didn't um, off the bat seem like the most supportive for primary care ends up making the group more cohesive, 
tries harder to do the work that they do, continues to prove how important they feel like their work is. And so I almost wonder if being in that big place and kind of being a small fish also created a little bit of the like can-do attitude and the um, cohesiveness again of the group itself. And so I think ultimately I really benefited from being there and had such a wonderful experience in my training there. Um, But it was definitely something I had to seek out that wasn't, you know, inherently part of the major curriculum. I'm hopeful that it continues to change and changes as I think in general people are finding primary care to be really important. Um, And a couple of the activities that I helped initiate when I was a medical student are still going on today and have been like recently highlighted by the dean of the university and other things like that. So I'm hopeful that it continues to improve. Are you talking about the student clinic? I am talking about a student clinic. Um, so I went to Medline, you see. Ah, I see. Um, so when I was a medical student, through my family medicine interest group, I became involved with a small group of students, and we started one, a student-run clinic specifically for the homeless um, called Columbia Harlem Homeless Medical Project Champ. Um, and we spent a couple throughout my medical school, really kind of envisioning the project and looking for a site. And by the end of my medical school, it finally opened, and then I was able to work there during my residency. Um, and that clinic was in its, I think it must be 12th year now, because I went back for the 10-year celebration party. And it was just wonderful to see all the people that had been involved with it over the years and see that the clinic is still really thriving and remains a pipeline for students that are interested in primary care to get real exposure to what community medicine can be. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. So are you able to, so we we, we tracked you to Columbia, where you did medical school and residency. And what did you do after that? Um, after medical school and residency, I got a job in New York City um, at a wonderful organization called the Institute for Family Health. And it's a network of community health centers, federally qualified community health centers all over New York City. Um, and I was working in the South Bronx at a clinic called Urban Horizons and at a healthcare for the homeless site um, at a church in Upper West Side of Manhattan called All Angels Church. So I kind of split my time. I spent about seven half days in the Bronx and two half days in Manhattan with with a predominantly homeless population. Um, It was a fabulous job. I really loved it. Um, And I felt like I was able to really do the job I thought I was going to do when I went into family medicine. So in my Bronx location, I had a a predominantly Spanish-speaking population, large families, multi-generations, really felt like I got to know people over time. I was able to do reproductive health, um, a lot of women's health, prenatal care, babies, old people, you know, kind of the whole gamut of family medicine um, in an environment that I was really interested in working with. Um, And then I got to pursue my other passion, which was healthcare for the homeless at the homeless site. And so that site was really wonderful. It was in the basement of a church. um, And the the upstairs of the church was a drop-in center for homeless people to come spend time with or people that are homeless to spend time in. And then in the bottom, two days a week, there was a clinic that everybody kind of knew about. And so I was the solo doctor there, but we also had a huge team. Um, We had a psychiatrist who was there once a week. I had 
case manager, an AmeriCorps worker, a social worker who did some therapy. So really a lot of services for people. Um, and we were able to provide primary care and then all the wraparound services that patients would need. Um, and so that was a really unique kind of practice to work in and something that I really enjoyed. How did you end up in Pennsylvania? How did I end up in Pennsylvania? So um, I think probably as in uh, for, for many medical students, I am married to a physician or other people in medicine, but um, I came because of my husband's training. <laughs> so we ended up relocating to New York, to Philadelphia from New York City. Is he at Penn as well? Uh, my husband is at CHOP. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. Are there any patients that stand out that is just patients that have stuck with you in some way that you could talk about? Um, sure. So um, I think for me in primary care, we're often making small changes over time. And what's now been really wonderful for me, I've been in the same job for seven years. And so I've had now some continuity relationships that are seven years long and looking back and where we started and where we are now. Um, and I think that's the most exciting thing. Sometimes um, sometimes it's really dramatic. I saw a patient last night I hadn't seen in quite some time and I had diagnosed her breast cancer five years ago. She came in, she had a lump, we diagnosed it, we helped her get treated. She's five years in remission. That is really um I'm like really happy for her. I'm happy that I helped her through that process. And sometimes it's something dramatic like a cancer diagnosis. But I think the the things that I really do enjoy in primary care are when maybe there isn't a dramatic moment, but it is someone whose diabetes is uncontrolled and we are just slowly working at it, maybe month after month or every two months, and we're making changes. And you can look back and say, okay, two or three years later, we did something here and I'm feeling better. Um, and so I, I think I, I, I value that. Um, the other types of experiences that I think really stand out to me in family medicine are the multi-generational, intergenerational um, types of things I get to do. And one of the most, you know, kind of specific examples of that is prenatal care and then newborn care. Um, and so I had two patients this week who, um, female patients who have been my patients five, six years, had already been my primary care patients, got pregnant. I followed them and cared for them throughout their entire pregnancy. They both had their babies this week. They will be coming back with their babies next week. I will be kind of following their babies as they grow up. And sort of that kind of closed um, experience, I think is really unique to family medicine and something I really enjoy. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. One recent really um, important experience that I had is I did have a patient who I followed for seven years who had uncontrolled diabetes. Um, and ultimately, maybe about three years ago, I helped her through the process of starting dialysis. She's been on dialysis. Um, and during this time, I have cared for her children as well. And then when her child got pregnant, her 
child during the pregnancy as well as her granddaughter. So I take care of three generations of this family, as well as actually my patient's mother, who is not my primary patient, but often gets admitted to the hospital where I work. So I take care of her as well. So four generations of a family that I know really well um, and spend a lot of time with for various reasons, because between all of them, I'm seeing them in the office in various permutations, probably once or twice, once every month or two. Um, and unfortunately, my patient um, had an event where she ended up in the intensive care unit um, and there was a concern that she wouldn't recover. And I was in very, very close communication with the extended family and her children and involved in the um, came, you know, actually I had to call in, but was at a family meeting where ultimately we discussed her prognosis and decided to withdraw care. Um, and in thinking about that experience, having known her for so long, having known multiple members of her family in so many different ways and different contexts, um, and being there for her really at the very end, um, that, that to me is like what family medicine is. Um, and I will add, I was there with her family at bedside the night before they withdrew care, and I was at her funeral with her family after she passed. So to me, that is probably, you know, one of the most extreme examples of what it can be like to really be with someone from the beginning and unfortunately to the end. Um, and it's a dramatic example, but I, and, and super, um, like meaningful to me and something that um, has been really important to me to be a part of this family's life. Um, and I think what's interesting about family medicine is you don't know when those moments will come, will come. And so having those relationships with people for so many years, year in and year out, then you're there for them when they need you. And you can't always predict when that's going to be. And so I try to kind of bring that energy to all my interactions um, and then kind of remain available when things come up. Wow. That really is a continuity. Yes. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. I'd like to talk a little bit about my work with opiate use disorder because um, this is something that I've come to more recently in the last couple of years. Um, and I do think is, is unlike the slow, steady progress that I'm talking about with some of my other primary care patients, this is a pretty dramatic feel like kind of white knight <laughs> uh, about face moment for patients. And so I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, so I could tell you a little bit about my practice and then maybe some patient examples from Please that. go ahead. Um, so had we gotten to Thursday, I would have told you about my opiate use disorder clinic Let's talk going about through my day. Um, so Thursday is a, is a day for me where in the morning I do a lot of my residency teaching. So it's a morning where we have our residency lectures and I'm often involved in teaching on various topics and running um, some narrative medicine sessions and other sorts of things. But in the afternoon is has become one of my favorite parts of the week. And this is a, um, a dedicated session that I um, run for patients with opiate use disorder. Um, and specifically, we use medication to treat their opiate use disorder, most often a medication called buprenorphine naloxone or suboxone is the brand name. So um, Philadelphia is in the middle of an opiate crisis like lots of the, of the country, but we have the highest rate of overdose deaths of any city. And so we are really in the epicenter of this epidemic. 
Um, and I work at an institution at Penn where we have um, they had developed a center a couple of years ago and got money from the state to set up a series of case managers and certified recovery specialists and a whole team to really work on combating the epidemic. And in that process, they were looking for primary care doctors who were willing and interested to take this on as part of their work. Um, and so I had received, there's an additional eight hour training that you need to do in order to prescribe this medication, which I had done years ago and never really put to use. And so when they said, is anybody interested in doing this? I was like, I think I'd like to do this. And I, I, I think for me, it, it, I was interested because of my previous work with the homeless and in other um, community health centers of feeling like I wanted to be of service where the need was. And I think in Philadelphia in 2000, 20, but in 2018 when I started it, this is this is where the need is. So I became interested in doing this. Um, and um, currently, we now have two half-day sessions that we run at our office specifically for patients with opioid disorder on this medication. And so on last Thursday, I saw 14 patients um, kind of all kind of struggling with similar issues, but on this medication. And what's really amazing about this medication is it works really well. Um, and so with some of the counseling that we do and the support services we provide, we're seeing just kind of remarkable life transformations for our patients. Um, and so this has been the really kind of dramatic thing that I'm doing now where I get just kind of those amazing moments of, of, of kind of professional satisfaction and gratitude from patients. The first patient um, was one of my real motivations for getting involved in the program. And I'm happy to say it's been two years. Um, he His life has changed from living on the streets, um, using injection drugs every couple hours, to being housed, being in a new relationship. He has a new child. He has a job. He no longer uses injection drugs. His hepatitis C is treated. He still has struggles like all of us do. I still see him quite regularly, and we address his needs. But his life has been completely transformed. Wow. How often do you see that level of transformation? In an amazing amount of people. <laughs> so this is a very difficult to treat diagnosis. Um, we are in our program. We have seen up, to, I think, almost 90 patients over the last couple of years. We still have more than half of them, like 50 plus patients that are actively enrolled with us. Not everyone has gone from using every two hours to not touching heroin. Um, but the success stories are more often. And the really amazing thing is even the patients who aren't successful with us remain engaged with us. So we have a lot of patients who may not be ready for the medication yet or may not do well on the treatment, and we refer them to a higher level of care or to a methadone program, or they go to our hospital system and then they come and see us afterwards. We have patients that have a recurrence of use and we don't hear about from a while, we outreach them, we try to find them, and then they come back. So we do have, I think the important thing, like all primary care, is the relationship, the open door, and then kind of the, the relationship over time so that if people aren't ready right then, that they're ready later. Um, but I have seen just a really amazing amount of success here. Um, the other story is just from this week. Mm -hmm. 
um, a patient who's in his late 60s who has been an IV heroin user for much of his life. Um, he is quite medically ill with multiple significant medical issues um, and had been on Suboxone in our practice or buprenorphine naloxone in our practice for a while um, and had a recurrence of use where he used heroin and was found essentially overdosed in his car by the police. He was reversed with Narcan, which is a medicine that reverses it, brought to an emergency room, watched for a while and basically sent home. Um, and now a couple of days later, it was a Monday and he kind of walked into our office and was like, is Dr. Chertok here? I, I just need to talk to her. Um, and, you know, he didn't have an appointment. He wasn't scheduled to see me. I happened to be there. I pulled him into a room and, and you know, we talked about it. Um, and he kind of felt just so lucky to be alive. He understood the stakes of what he was doing. I understand the stakes of sort of how serious this can be and how at risk my patients are. Um, and we kind of essentially restarted the medication, came up with a plan to see each other again two days later, check in closely. I alert, you know, I got our case managers involved and our peer support involved and all the people involved to kind of help him through this process. But um, I mean, he ended the visit with just more gratitude than I think I've ever gotten from a patient in terms of kind of how scared he was, how, how sick he knew he was, and how thankful he was that I was there to kind of help guide the next steps. And have you had feedback on how he's doing over this past week? I saw him yesterday. So I'll see him again on Thursday. He's still uh, on the wagon? I hope so. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about Suboxone. Um, you always prescribe the combination. I do. Mm -hmm. And Talk a little bit about how it works and, and what you see it does for people. Yeah. Um, so the buprenorphine naloxone combination medication is sort of a really interesting way of treating opiate use disorder because it both um, essentially is an opiate and is an opiate blocker at the same time. And so that gives it some really interesting qualities. It can um, prevent cravings and withdrawal symptoms. It can sort of, and then it also blocks the receptors in a way that prevents people from getting high. So if they use a, a different opiate or heroin or um, anything on while they're taking the Suboxone, essentially blocks the effect. So it helps with cravings, helps with withdrawal, and then basically prevents you from getting high if you choose to. So it has a lot of things going for it as a medication. It does require you to take it, right? And to be in a place where you feel like you can take it on a regular basis. Um, but in terms of a treatment for opiate use disorder, it's 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 really great. Um, the challenge is starting a patient on the medication. And it's not a huge challenge, but basically you need to not have opiates in your system when you start the medication. And so you have to be a little bit in withdrawal, which means feeling a little bit sick. And so at this point, we, when we're starting someone fresh, um, we essentially give them the medication and tell them to go home and wait and wait till they feel sick. Um, and once they get to that point of feeling um, like they're in withdrawal, like they would otherwise use to feel better, then they can switch to the Suboxone. Do they come in every day to get a dose? So um, unlike a methadone maintenance program, which requires daily dosing and daily treatment at a program, Suboxone does not have those regulations around it. So that's why it can be prescribed in a general primary care setting or any other setting for that matter. Um, so in our program, what we've done, and this is sort of 
along best practices is we see people weekly in the beginning. And so we essentially see people weekly for at least six weeks or as long as it takes for them to be taking our medication and not using other illicit substances. And then once people have been with us for six weeks weekly, if things are going well and they're doing well, then we see them every other week for about six weeks. And then we do long-term monthly visits after that. Do you dispense, you dispense it directly at? We do not. We prescribe it to our pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And so they took home at first seven doses. Correct. Okay. And so why is it that it's able uh, to be taken that way, whereas methadone is not? It's a historical quirk of regulations to, to, is, is one important answer. Um, but buprenorphine is safer than methadone in that way. Um, you essentially, without mixing it with other substances, cannot overdose on it. And so giving someone a large quantity, would, you would not be worried about that potential risk that someone who has a history of addiction might be tempted to try more and more and more. And even if they did that with Suboxone, they couldn't get themselves into trouble. And so I think that's um, that's the pharmacologic reason for it. Um, but But honestly, a lot of it is just has to do with the regulations and how they kind of came to be. Now, back when I was training in residency, um, Suboxone wasn't out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we we were at a hospital that had a very large number of, of patients on methadone. And often in the park, I would see people swaying, standing up, kind of swaying in the wind, mm-hmm. kind of looking like they were asleep. They would get to the point where they would almost fall over, and then they would jolt awake and, and then fall asleep on their feet again. So people often look like they're very somnolent. Mm-hmm. Does the, does that happen with Suboxone? Not typically. Um, and I think that's an advantage for a lot of our patients who've maybe been on methadone before or have seen people on methadone. Um, but it doesn't tend to cause the somnolence that methadone does. Actually, it's been tested for driving. You're safe to drive on Suboxone. They've sort of looked at it in that way. Um, And I don't see people have that experience of it. Um, Many of my patients are employed, for example, which I think, um, depending on how people respond to methadone, might be more of a challenge. Certainly the barrier of having to go to a clinic every day makes employment difficult. And and I think just to um, be straightforward about this, um, at the time, many of the patients that we're in our system and we're coming to the ER, we're on very high doses of methadone, um, really high doses, um, well over 100 milligrams. Um, and, you know, I believe there's plenty of patients out there on much lower doses than that uh, who are not somnolent yeah, and are able to be quite productive and really not suffer the, that particular ill effect. How, do the, how does methadone and suboxone, how do they compare, you know, are there patients that you think will do better on methadone? So methadone provides an additional structure um, because of the daily use. And so there are some people who are um, who that structure can be beneficial for. And there are some people where that's a real deterrent for them. Um, so typically, we discuss methadone a lot in our program and we refer readily. Um, but most of the patients end up with us because they don't want to be on methadone for one reason or another. And so um, we have had two patients that I could think of fairly recently who tried Suboxone and said, this isn't for me. I I did methadone. I was on a methadone program before and that worked better for me. And we're like, great, come see us for primary care, which is what they both have done. Um, but um, for the most part, our patients that by the by the ways that they come to our program, this is already what they've chosen as their treatment modality. 
Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Medical Murmurs. You have been listening to my interview with Dr. Judy Chertok, an assistant professor for family medicine and community health at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also assistant program director for the residency in family medicine. And in addition to general family medicine, she treats patients with opioid use disorder. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there's another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions, such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called the Medical Student Edition. Check it out.